I must disclose to appropriate members of Congress serious and ongoing contract abuse I cannot address internally. I can unequivocally state that the abuse related to contracts awarded to KBR represents the most blatant and improper contract abuse I have witnessed during the course of my professional career. Welcome to Nickels and Crimes and the podcast that dives deep into the dark underbelly of corporate procurement. I'm your host, James Boom, and in this series, we're going to uncover the seedy world of procurement fraud, racketeering, bribery, kickbacks, corruption, bid rigging, and the manipulation of procurement rules. It's a world where some of the most respected corporations engage in criminal activities to secure lucrative government contracts or gain an unfair advantage in the marketplace. So fasten your seatbelts and get ready for a roller coaster ride through the twists and turns of corporate procurement scandals. We'll uncover the secrets, expose the culprits, and discuss the impact on businesses, economies, and society as a whole. Texas, Houston, August 1, 2005. We are at the KBR Tower in downtown Houston. The KBR Tower is the headquarters of KBR, an engineering, procurement, and construction company. It is a subsidiary of Halliburton. From the executive suites of 40th floor, a tall man, a bit jowly with a resemblance to the actor Edward Herman, strides in the Mabel-floored passage to the boardroom for a media interview. Dressed in shirt sleeves for our meeting, he is articulate and low-key, unfazed by any question. Still, it becomes clear why, though he is sometimes admired, Lassar is rarely loved. In a dirty fingernails business, he retains a certain detachment, a bean counter's awkward feel for the art of human relations. Trained as a CPA, Lassar spent 16 years at Arthur Anderson, though he apparently doesn't view that as a PR+. His corporate biography omits his time at the firm that did Enron's accounting. He is the CEO of Halliburton. As Dave Leeser sees it, America should be praising, not burying, Halliburton for its work in Iraq. His company was handed a far larger task than it ever imagined, he says, and it rapidly assembled a logistical juggernaut involving billions of dollars and a workforce of 46,000. What Halliburton did is tantamount to creating a Fortune 500 company in 18 months, he says. In any other context, it would be zero to 46,000, this wonderful entrepreneurial success story. Of course, a company that grew that fast is going to have growing pains, Lassar quickly adds. But every little stumble is held up and magnified in the political process. If you look at what we've done on the ground, it's a pure miracle. In the Balkans, where Halliburton provided similar military support, you didn't hear any of this stuff. What we did there was good. What we've done in Iraq is good. To the third power. Okay, but what is Lassar talking about? Why is he cagey when asked about his company? Well, mention its name and images flash. Vice President Dick Cheney bestowing fat, no-bid contracts on the company he once ran. A giant corporation engaged in shameless war profiteering charging outrageous prices to provide fuel for Iraqis and meals for American troops. Halliburton became a punchline, as when Tonight Show host Jay Leno noted that Saddam Hussein was captured with $750,000 in cash on him. They think, Leno explained, that he was trying to buy three gallons of gas from Halliburton. Lissar sighed and shook his head wearily. 
I understand the political realities, but the accusations thrown at Halliburton are simply unfair. Yes, we received contracts without competitive bidding in the initial chaotic months after the invasion. But can you blame the military for wanting to work with a known quantity when lives were at stake? We mobilized our resources and people as quickly as humanly possible to support the troops. He leaned forward intently. And as for overcharging, I'd ask our critics to name a single company, private or public, that could have done what we did for less in such difficult operating conditions. Putting out tenders would only have delayed the process while companies debated terms. Speed and efficiency were imperative. The lives we saved with our rapid response more than justified any perceived extra costs. A shadow crossed Lazar's face. As for the jokes about no-bid deals and war profiteering, those sting. But I didn't see Jay Leno or the politicians volunteering to go to Iraq themselves. It was Halliburton people, putting their lives on hold and in danger, who ensured our troops had what they needed to accomplish their vital mission. We're proud to have played a part in that. He smiled, Weeder. So you'll have to forgive me if I don't lose sleep over a few late-night monologues. And while the company's Middle East operation was the subject of scathing audits and investigations, it was hardly raking in scandalous profits. Indeed, Kellogg, Brown & Brute, KBR, the part of Halliburton's business that America learned to hate because it was making far too much is the part of the business Wall Street hated because it was making far too little. Halliburton's task in Iraq truly was monumental. KBR provided all manner of services, food, water, shelter, mail delivery, laundry, for more than 150,000 soldiers. Much of that work was carried out in desert conditions and at considerable risk. 62 Halliburton employees and subcontractors have been killed, and several times that number have been wounded. But then, no one really questions Halliburton's skill at tending to the troops. The real issue was the company's ability to manage and account for what it is spending. And while it's certainly true that many of the attacks on the company have been politically motivated, not all of them are. In fact, what's far more damning than the partisan attacks has been the scrutiny of Pentagon auditors, the General Accounting Office, the Inspector General of the Coalition Provisional Authority, and the Justice Department. Of course, it's hard to worry about receipts when mortar shells are dropping around you. But the disarray and poor management depicted in the government reports and vividly described by former KBR project managers in Iraq, made a chaotic situation immeasurably worse. Virtually all of Halliburton's $11 billion in government work in Iraq had been performed under two contracts. It had the smaller of the two, the $2.5 billion Restore Iraqi Oil RIO agreement that generated the most suspicion about Cheney's hidden hand because it was awarded secretly on a no-bid basis in March 2003, on the eve of war. Under this cost-plus contract, Halliburton was hired to put out oil field fires and rebuild Iraq's oil infrastructure. It is under this contract that KBR charged infamously high prices to ship gasoline into Iraq. The premise for the no-bid award was that Halliburton was already briefed on classified military plans for the war and would be best able to move equipment and staff into the country quickly. Halliburton receives a fee of 2% of its costs, plus a performance award of up to 5%. Cheney and others in the administration vehemently denied that he had anything to do with ARIO, but time revealed an email from an Army Corps of Engineers official noting that action on the Halliburton contract had been coordinated with the Vice President's office. 
While this was certainly tantalizing and was accompanied by other evidence suggesting political appointees played a role in Halliburton's selection, the nonpartisan J.O. concluded that the no-bid award followed proper procedures. After ten months, the job was split in two and competitively bid. Halliburton was awarded the oil work for southern Iraq while the North went to another contractor. The biggest piece of Halliburton's Iraq work, an estimated $8.5 billion in billing so far, comes under an Army support contract called LogCap for Logistics Civil Augmentation Program. Its origins predate Cheney's time at Halliburton. He did play a role in creating the LogCap business during his years as Secretary of Defense, but it was long before U.S. soldiers marched into Baghdad. Historically, Halliburton had always worked for the government on a project-by-project basis. Management was never keen on working for Uncle Sam. Earl Halliburton was rabidly anti-government, ranted about excessive taxation, and at the height of the Depression, even banned the company from hiring anyone who had been on the dole. But during its tough times in the late 1980s, Brown and Root, on the advice of McKinsey consultants, had established an ongoing government operation. Much of the appeal came from a Pentagon initiative to shrink the standing army and outsource support work. Halliburton set up a new subsidiary, Brown and at Root Services, and hired an executive from the outside, Arthur Stevens, to run it. Stevens says he quickly learned Rule 1 of government contracting, know what your costs are, and document them. This, he says, is almost as important as doing the actual work. Government contracting requires detailed documentation of everything, and maintaining control of the paperwork is a critical part of managing the business. The new Halliburton Division's first job was providing vehicle fleet maintenance for the city of Houston. Soon it was winning contracts to run and maintain military bases, including the U.S. Air Force's operations in Turkey and a big shipyard for the British Navy. Halliburton began supporting the Army's deployments in 1992, when it beat out 36 other bidders to win the five-year contract, now known as LogCap 1. LogCap started out small, as a $3.9 million contract whose first task was to plan how a private company would feed and house up to 20,000 troops in various military hotspots for 180 days. Brown and Root would be reimbursed for its costs and receive 1% profit as well as a performance fee set by a Pentagon review board of as much as 8%. To Stevens, that kind of profit margin was critical. The company was agreeing on a moment's notice to deploy staff, equipment, and supplies anywhere in the world. Halliburton's attitude, says Stevens, was, I'm willing to rip my company apart, but you've got to pay me to do it. Deployments quickly followed. Somalia in 1992, Haiti, Rwanda, and Kuwait in 1994, the Balkans in 1995. When Dick Cheney arrived as CEO that year, the government group celebrated. Who could do more to build their Pentagon business than the former Secretary of Defense? But Cheney, who traveled widely to drum up oil services work, wouldn't make any sales calls for the government business. It is unclear whether this was a matter of principle or political caution. He told one executive, I don't want to generate any headlines. Cesar says, I don't think he viewed the U.S. government as a particularly good customer. In 1997, LogCap was rebid and Brown and Brute lost the work to a company called Dincorp. But the Clinton-era Pentagon allowed the Halliburton subsidiary to hang on to the biggest piece of log cap work, in the Balkans, reasoning that a transition there would be disruptive. As it turned out, 
Halliburton made decent money on government work during the Cheney years. The Balkans' deployment alone generated $2.2 billion in revenues through 2000, and Halliburton always received at least 98% of the maximum award fee. The military was clearly delighted with Halliburton. As described by a GAO report, one Balkans project, the construction of a 5,000-man base camp, required the Army and KBR to build the equivalent of a small town in a wheat field in a few months. Gone were the days of sleeping in foxholes and eating out of tin cans. The KBR-backed army slept on cots and ate three hot squares in mess halls. Even then, the issue wasn't whether KBR did enough for the military. It was whether it did, and spent, too much. The GAO said some military brass wondered whether the level of services may be above and beyond what is really needed. There were reports that the contractor was so overstaffed in the Balkans that offices were cleaned four times a day. Projects had a way of escalating far beyond what was projected. The GAO called Pentagon outsourcing contracts a high-risk area of government spending. In 2001, the log cap contract came up for bid again, this time for a 10-year term. Randy Harl, a company veteran then in charge of the restructured KBR division that included government work, was eager to reclaim the business. So were others at the company. LogCap was seen as a magnet for other higher-margin contracts, so KBR bid a price that was shockingly low. In addition to being reimbursed for what it spent, Halliburton would get a base fee of 1% and a maximum performance award of just 2%. A former Halliburton executive involved in the bidding still winces at the deal. Between litigation expense and the amounts that the government might disallow in Iraq, he says, log cap could be the first cost-plus contract in history that's lost money. The Iraq deployment was Halliburton's toughest log cap job yet, involving seven times as many troops as in the Balkans, far closer to active combat. And unlike in Bosnia, where it did virtually all the work itself, KBR handed off most of its business in Iraq to subcontractors, or subs as they're called, but it was utterly unprepared to manage them. According to key former KBR executives who worked in Iraq, the company never assembled the teams needed to negotiate and supervise subcontracts, purchase supplies and equipment, and document what it was doing. The first people I needed were subcontract administrators, and what I got were carpenters and plumbers, says one former KBR project manager. The system to execute the work was woefully undermanned. The top log cap managers were crying for people, says another former KBR executive in Iraq. Two or three times a day we would call, asking for procurement people, IT help, finance people to keep the books. Houston couldn't get them to us. The company did not throw enough resources at the problem soon enough. There comes a point where you lose control. People started talking shortcuts. We'll do it verbally and we'll document tomorrow. Well, tomorrow you have more work. Eventually, it just collapses of its own weight. Dozens of KBR subcontractors have gone unpaid for months. At least two have filed suit. Because of the staffing shortages, sound business procedures simply weren't followed. For example, according to a company SEC filing, the Pentagon is withholding payment on $224 million in dining hall charges. Auditors found that, among other problems, Halliburton was charging for meals that were never served to troops. A former KBR executive highlighted a case in which a subcontractor billed for feeding 4,700 soldiers every day for months when no more than 2,500 ever showed up to eat. In fact, the subcontractor had been hired to provide for 4,700 soldiers, but no one at KBR had told the sub to cut back.
As we close part one, the path this story is unfolding down is rife with intrigue. Based on the details shared so far, there are certainly question galore circulating in your minds. First and foremost, what really happened with that meal billing discrepancy? Was it truly an innocent mistake as KBR claims? Or is there more below the surface as the suspicious numbers would imply? Could it be that KBR was taking advantage of the cost plus contract to intentionally inflate bills and milk more money from taxpayers than was honestly due? Their accounting and procurement practices certainly demand closer scrutiny. Was someone lining their pockets with gold from these overcharged coffers? And perhaps most crucially, was this merely the tip of the procurement iceberg? In the beginning of this episode, we heard a sound clip. What role did she play? Why did she risk all by ringing the alarm? Did she point a finger to the then Vice President of the United States, Dick Cheney and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld? So many questions. In the next episode, a federal grand jury in Illinois filed the first criminal charges involving Halliburton's work in Iraq. A former Halliburton procurement manager, who had worked for the company for seven years, was charged with fraud, accused of taking a $1 million kickback for awarding an inflated government subcontract to a Kuwaiti firm. Was there more to this? A can of worms? Find out more on the next episode of Nickels and Crimes. My name is James Boom, and this is Nickels and Crimes, an SRM Plus production.